This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're in a new series starting today called Unhinged, and we're really looking at the topic of offense. And so I'm going to ask you a question. I just want you to be vulnerable about this with me just for a moment. In the last 10 minutes, maybe the last 10 hours, last 10 days, maybe in the last 10 months, in the last 10 years, has something happened that offended you, and you're still carrying it in your heart? Raise your heart. Raise your hands if that's you today. Something's happened. That's hands all over, hands all over the room today. Now, let me ask you another question. I just want you to uh, equally be honest with me for this moment. If you're the person that's here today and you say, you know, it is just so easy for me. It's so easy for me to become offended. Things happen and and I just take them personally and, and it's just so easy. It's easy for me to take offense. Raise your hand if that's you. Like hands all over the room. All right. You are not alone, right? Isn't that good news? I think that this topic is such a serious topic. We even see this painted in the ministry of Jesus. And I believe that as we dive into the topic of offense, that if you're a believer in here, outside of the initial confrontation that you had with truth when you gave your life to Jesus, there may be no greater confrontation that you'll ever have with truth than what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. Because Jesus, his perspective on offense and forgiveness is so vastly different than the culture that we live in. We see this in his teaching in Luke 17, which is later on in the ministry of Jesus. This happens after the disciples have seen blind eyes open, after they have seen lame walk, after they have been in storms that scared professional fishermen, and Jesus spoke to the storm, and it stilled. Jesus teaches them in Luke 17, verse 4, and he says this, Even if a person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. I I don't know about you, but I'm checking out after like two or three, right? But Jesus says seven times. The the number seven kind of referencing like this is a never-ending process. As many times as they offend you, if they come back and ask for forgiveness, forgive them. And do you know what the disciples who had seen him quiet the storm, heal the blind, do you know what their response was? Pay attention to this. The apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. (laughs) You know Why? Because they said, they're basically saying, Jesus, we don't have that kind of faith. We don't have that kind of faith. Like you're telling us that we need to forgive to that level? And I don't think that there's a more serious topic that we could entertain than dealing with the forgiveness of an offense. You're going to see that. In just a moment, as we dive into the teaching that Jesus leveraged on this topic, it, it may be one of the most central 
in direct attacks that our enemy has against your relationship with God and others. And Jesus teaches in Matthew 24, and, and he's teaching about really our present day, the, the, what, what the Bible would call the, the end of the age, this fast-forwarding of the movement of the gospel, and then there's going to be these signs, and if you read through it, you're, you'll notice all the signs. And then in Matthew 24, verse 10, he said, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many will be offended, many will betray one another, and many will hate one another. Now the word that's used there in the Greek for offended is the word polos, which literally translated can mean um, much of number, but if you look into its kind of core definition, kind of coming out of the parts that is used, it really means literally most or mostly. Which is why just a few moments ago when I asked, in your heart, are you carrying an offense? Almost every hand in the room went up. Almost every hand went up. That the majority would be offended. And then he lists out a progression. Many will be offended. And then they will betray one another. And then... And then they will hate one another. It's a progression. Why does that start off that way? I think Proverbs 18 verse 19 gives us a clue to that where the writer Solomon says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. In Solomon's day, a strong city was defended by what? Walls. It was defended by walls. You put walls around the city to keep those who would attack you or hurt you out, and you let only the people that you felt safe in. So what happens when we become offended? We start to build walls. We start to build walls. Now, the Old Testament calls them walls. The New Testament kind of changes the name because we build walls with the intention of protecting ourselves. I've been hurt, so I'm going to keep those that have hurt me away, and I'm only going to let those that feel safe come near. But the New Testament changes the terminology and calls them strongholds. And we see them addressed directly by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, this letter to the church in Corinth where he recognizes there's a lot of this kind of stuff that is going on. And so he says, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now keep that verse, verse up there just for, notice that he says the weapons that we fight with. Now, many of us, when we think about the world that God designed for us to live in today, the truth is, is that we think about it like a playground. That God has created all of this for us to enjoy. And, and I, I do believe that so much of creation God intended for us to enjoy. It is a, an invitation to enjoy Him in that. But there's a tension between that and another reality. 
that the world is not just a playground, the world is also a battlefield where we are battling against an enemy that has targeted you and wants to destroy what God wants to do in your life. And so he continues. So now we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Do you notice when he begins to describe what a stronghold, what it is? Look, look at this. Strongholds are set patterns of thinking that we regularly use to process life. A lot of times we like to think about strongholds as circumstances. But they're not. The stronghold lives in the way that you think, which is important to notice because offense shifts the way that we think. When we're offended, it shifts the way that we think and process and understand the world that we live in, which is why in that verse, I don't know if you noticed this, but he said we need to bring every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Our thoughts have to be disciplined to be obedient to who God says he is. And we experience offense, our thoughts, and the patterns of our thoughts begin to shift. Let's just think about one of the simplest, most obvious verses in all the Bible. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, right? That's what love does. Love gives. In every instance that we love, when we love, it, we give. We give of ourselves. We give our time. We give our attention. We give our affection. Love gives. But what happens when you're offended? What happens? All of a sudden, your perspective shifts from what can I give to I need to protect myself. I need to protect myself. Which is why becoming offended makes you a perfect candidate for betrayal. Becoming offended makes you a perfect candidate to become betrayed. A lot of times we don't understand betrayal. Betrayal is, in our minds, only exists in, in hyperbole-type situations where it's over-exaggerated, like Judas Iscariot or Benedict Arnold. Uh, but, but really, betrayal is, is something different. I want you to see this definition of betrayal and start to process betrayal this way. Betrayal happens when I seek my benefit or my protection over someone that I have a loving and covenant relationship with. I became offended. And so now, instead of giving and being focused on giving and meeting their needs, now all of a sudden I am more concerned with protecting myself and my emotions. I start to wall. I start to push out. Which is why betrayal is the ultimate abandonment of a relationship. Because it shifts. It takes the perspective from the other person and starts putting it on you and starts putting it on your needs and your desires and your heart and protecting yourself and it begins to increase distance and decrease intimacy. 
That's what betrayal is. See, betrayal, actually, when it becomes a part of a relationship, especially a covenant relationship, it causes love to grow cold. So step into my living room for a moment and let me talk to you about how that happens. See, love is a lot like fire. And I don't know about you, but around this time when it starts to get cold, we like to make fires in our houses. We like to have some campfires or bonfires or a fire pit. We know a lot about fire. Fire takes two things, really. It takes some fuel and it takes air. Think about what happens when you begin to wall off your life. What happens? The things that are needed no longer are able to get in. Do you know what happens with a thriving fire if you take away all the oxygen? It goes out. And so many of us, in the response to a betrayal, an offense, we have walled our hearts off to the point that what is needed to sustain the fire of love can no longer be reached. And the flame goes out. You see, when we've focused on protection, we're ultimately focused on ourselves. And when we program our thoughts to focus on protecting us, we will inevitably choke out the life of love. That's why betrayal is so significant. So offense can lead to betrayal, and then when it's left unaddressed, betrayal will lead to hatred. Now, the the thing about hatred is a lot of times if I were going to ask you to define what does it mean to hate someone, you would really most likely, the common person in this room would say that hate is the extreme of anger. But if we're honest about our experience, the things that make us the most angry are the things that we care about deeply. You ever been there? Right? You get so angry at your spouse, but I love them. I'm so mad, but I love you anyway. Please don't leave me, but I, love, I just hate you. But, but you're right. We, we describe hate as that, but I think that that's a misdiagnosis of what hate really is. We see this kind of in a picture in 2 Samuel when the Bible describes a relationship that exists between two of King David's sons. It says, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon. Wasn't angry at him. Totally ignored it. First John 4.20 puts it this way. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? Leave that verse up there. The word that's used for hate in that word or in that, that passage is the Greek word meseo, which it can be translated into hate. But if we were looking at the word, it means to love less and less and less and less and less. Hate is a vacuum of love. That's what hate is. 
Hate is complete and total indifference. I don't care. I'm not interested. And there's nothing in my heart at all that is provoked at all. So Jesus says, in those days, many will become offended. And then they will betray each other. And then they will hate each other. So what does he say next? Matthew 24, verse 11, he says, Then many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Who are the many people who are being deceived that Jesus is talking about? It's those who were offended. Which lets me know something about offense, which is very important for you to to just kind of see and realize today that an offended heart is the breeding ground for deception. An offended heart is the breeding ground for deception. So Jesus says, put that that verse back up there. That in those days, false prophets will appear and deceive many. In Matthew 7, Verse 15, Jesus describes false prophets. And he gives us a picture of what they look like. He describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Can I just point out something that's a little obvious to me? Maybe you've never noticed this. But he doesn't describe a false prophet as a wolf in a shepherd's clothing. See, a lot of times when we think about false prophets, we think about the person on the stage that's teaching something that's against the scriptures. That's not at all who Jesus is pointing out as a false prophet. A wolf in sheep's clothing. I love what John Bevere, John Bevere said. There are more false prophets in the pews than in the pulpits. A false prophet is someone who is proclaiming something that is opposite the reality of God's truth. It is the person who on the ride home says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you remember when the pastor was talking about that? you know, forgive your enemy stuff. That's only for like the really top tier Christians. That's not for us. It's not for us everyday average Christians. Or it's that person who says, you know what? You know, I know that, I know that we're supposed to be generous and, and I know that God uses a, a standard of percentages by which he judges what generosity looks like. It's not an, an amount, it's a percentage. But, but here's the thing, man. This stuff's not real. I mean, just give what you can afford. Like, look at your budget and whatever you can afford. Just give, give that. Or even worse, it's the person who says, you know what? Don't get involved. They'll never, they'll never love you. They'll never support you. They're not going to be there when you need them. That is a false prophet. And Jesus describes them as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I love some animal documentaries. Anybody else like an animal documentary? I do. I love This is like my favorite thing in the whole wide world to fall asleep to. Like Blue Planet, I live on that, right? Right before bed, like David Attenborough's voice is so amazing. I love it. Planet Earth is an amazing documentary. A year ago, they released a film that showed uh, this, this behavior in some animals. 
that is predatory. Do you, do you know who predators attack? First of all, they attack in, in clusters. And secondly, they attack who? The weak and the isolated. And this video shows um, behavior that has never been captured on film before of a predatory animal attacking a young baby iguana that had just hatched. Now, if you don't like snakes, for the next few moments, it's a good idea for you to cover your face. Close your eyes. Don't watch this video. If you have, like, nightmares of snakes, just warning you ahead of time. But this video shows what Jesus is describing. I want you to watch this with me. A snake's eyes aren't very good, but they can detect movement. So if the hatchling keeps its nerve, it may just avoid detection. escape. Honestly, it's my, my hope that many of you experience today the miraculous escape that is offered to you through Jesus. Because there are a lot of you sitting in the room today that offense has rendered you isolated and weak. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desires and he rages against wise judgment. The problem with with offense and how it leads to isolation is that you can be in a big family and even attend a big church, but you can still be offended and isolated and alone and weak because offense leads to an isolation that is not simply being alone. The isolation happens in the soul. 
Because you start building walls to protect yourself. You start building walls that you thought were going to help you and protect you and preserve you. But they end up cutting you off. You become isolated. And when you become isolated, you become a target. And there are some of you in here today that the bitterness of offense has left you isolated. And I'm praying that you experience that today. So Jesus continues from verse 11 where he says that the false prophets will deceive many and then into verse 12. And then he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, wickedness that's listed there is really just to understand that. It is really living in contrary terms to the the way that God designed life, not being submitted to God's word. And the wickedness that's being described in this passage isn't just a wickedness that emerges in our behavior. It's a wickedness that exists in the way that we think. Because what we thought would protect us, would help us, has only made us more vulnerable. What we thought would protect us has only made us more vulnerable. And it's so interesting because you would think that in this passage, Jesus is talking to all of us, but he's not. He's actually talking to those who have chosen to follow him. Because in the last verse in this passage, he says, the one who stands firm to the end of the age will be saved. So he's talking to Christians who have experienced the miracle of redemption and new life. And he says in that verse, pull it back up again in verse 12, that the love of most, when they become offended, will grow cold. It will grow cold. Now, you've probably heard of the principle of the frog in the kettle. If you take a frog and you put it into a kettle that has normal room temperature and you turn on the the heat, as it begins to boil, the frog will not notice the change in temperature and eventually will be found in boiling water. Because the temperature changes gradually. But if you put him in boiling water, he jumps right out because he notices the difference. See, Jesus is pointing out that this offense actually reverses that process that the fire that was ignited will gradually, without you even noticing it, grow colder and colder and colder and colder. And I think that there's some insight into how offense creeps into our lives. In Psalm 55, where King David is writing, beginning in verse 12, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could handle it. But it's you that's insulting me, that's rising against me. It's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. See, the thing about offense is the person who has the greatest power to offend you is the one that you trust and love and live in covenant relationship with. The closer the relationship, the greatest the potential for offense. And see, we often expect the world to hurt us. We expect that. We expect people who don't know Jesus to act like they don't know Jesus. 
but it's those who are close to us that hurt us the most. So the closer the relationship, the greater the chance for offense. Let me illustrate this to you. The reason that that is present is because the closer the relationship, the more intimate the relationship, the greater the covenant that we're living in with them, the higher the level of expectation. So let's just think about you go to work tomorrow and you work with a bunch of non-Christians, right? They, they're out all weekend partying. They're hungover today just trying to get prepared to go to work tomorrow, all right? Your expectation for them is zero. I don't expect anything good to come from them. But your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people you go to church with, you have a little bit of expectation, right? I expect them to love me the way I love them and, and be kind to me the way that I now, now, pastors, we, we get a little bit more <laughs> expectations because we're basically considered to be professional Christians. We're supposed to have it all figured out, right? So we get up here and then your spouse, way up there, right? Most intimate and loving relationship that we live in at all. So what happens? Let me explain how this works, right? Higher levels of expectation. That person at the office that you work with that's not a believer, you don't have any expectation, all of a sudden they do something good for you. It's a blessing, right? It's a blessing. Praise God. Man, they were nice to me this morning. They were great. But that person that you considered a friend does something. All of a sudden there's a gap between the expectation and what they actually did. Opportunity for offense. Dealing with pastor or even your spouse, right? If that's, if that's what happens, the level of performance of your spouse is there and the expectation is up there. We're talking about counseling at that point, right? See, I think that we live in a world where it's easy to identify that there's a marriage crisis. It's just easy. Like we can look around. We know that, that there's statistically somewhere around 40 to 50% of most marriages end in divorce, right? That we know that that statistic exists out there. But I don't think we have a marriage crisis. I think we have an expectation crisis. Because people enter marriage saying, I want someone and I want to find someone who can meet my needs. When really what we need to be saying in our hearts is, I just want to find somebody who has the needs that I can meet. Like I can meet the needs that are represented there. Because... We don't want to serve. We want to be served. Which is the exact opposite of the covenant relationship that God designed marriage to be. Which is why if you look in Ephesians 5 where the Apostle Paul describes what it's supposed to look like, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as. In the same way. Just like Jesus, love your wife and give up your life so that she can be loved and cherished. Last week, John did such a great job describing Jesus as a servant. Where Jesus wrapped the towel around his waist and bent low that night before he's going to be betrayed and wash the feet of those that had been following him, taking the lowest form of servitude. Jesus shows us that if we enter into the world with the expectation for the world to serve us, we're always going to miss it. And I think that that's exactly why he would say this in Luke 17, verse 1. It is impossible that no offenses should come. 
It's impossible. How many of y'all know if Jesus says it's impossible, it's impossible. It's impossible. And he says, basically, listen, it's going to be impossible for you to live and not have the opportunity to be offended. You're going to have the opportunity to be offended. The question is, what are you going to do with it? It's the offense in your heart going to build a chasm between you and those that you love? Or is the offense in your heart going to bring you closer to the one that created you and designed you? Pull that verse up. There it is. It's impossible that no offenses should come. The word that's used for offenses is the Greek word scandal. It's actually an ancient word compared to a lot of the words that are used in the Greek New Testament. And the word describes the trigger in a trap. I want you to understand something. That when you take the bait to become offended, you have stepped into the trap of the enemy. If you look into a lexicon to get a definition of this word, it'll, it says this, I love this, scandalon always denotes an enticement to behavior that could ruin the person personally. It, it's a trigger to a greater trap that will unhinge the work that God has been doing on the inside of your life. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 and 26 the apostle Paul writing young Timothy who was a preacher like me he said a servant of the Lord must not quarrel must be gentle to all able to teach patient and humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance now pay attention to this so that they may know the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive to do his will. I believe in the day that we live, the primary mode that our enemy is attacking is through offense. And many of us have stepped into the trap and become his bitter. Have you ever noticed that Jesus reduced all of the commands of the Old Testament down to one? He said, a new command I give you. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. I don't know about you, but if I look over my life, my life is riddled with moments where I have offended Jesus. I have lived outside of his design for me. I have lived apart from who he wanted me to be. I have been angry. I have been vengeful. I have been jealous, and I have allowed in many times offense to become hatred. My sin, personally, is enough to nail him to the cross and hold him there. Personally, just me. 
Didn't have to be any more of y'all. I took care of all that business on my own. And do you know what? I have never went to him with an offense that he hasn't received in forgiveness. I have never got on my face and cried over something that I knew I had broken when he hasn't responded in restoration. I have never asked him to forgive me when he wasn't faithful to do it. And do you know that when he chooses to forgive me, he makes a conscious choice to say, I will separate your identity from the mistake that you've made. When I remember you, I choose no longer to remember you in light of that offense. So love the way that I have loved you. And so many of you, just like me, have been caught in the trap of offense and the love and light of God is growing colder and colder. And right now is the moment where you wake up, come to your senses, and realize that you are caught in the snare. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.